in the beginning of the movie Elf, there's a scene where the main character, Buddy the Elf, goes with his adopted elf father to see Santa's sleigh. You guys remember that scene? They have a dialogue about how the sleigh flies, and Buddy remarks, well, I thought the magical reindeer made the sleigh fly. And then the dad responds, and where do the magical reindeer get their magic from? The Christmas spirit. Everybody knows that, Buddy says. Buddy's father then gives Buddy the bad news that some people, those people, don't believe in Santa anymore. And this has created an energy crisis. The clausometer is down super low. It's so low that the sleigh doesn't fly. And if you notice the word at the top of the clausometer, it's because what is so low? The spirit, right? Now, if we really listen to the way that many self-professed Christians talk about the topic of faith, one would think that they have a theology, and particularly a pneumatology, or the view of the Holy Spirit, that is more akin to Buddy the Elf's view of Christmas spirit than it is actual biblical truth. Now, at discipleship group this week, uh, Lyle, who's the leader of the group I go to, was telling us about a professor that used to caution the students about looking at faith as if it were a muscle that can be flexed. He said, don't do that. And that's a great caution because so many Christians do look at it that way. We're constantly working, constantly trying to do works with our faith. If I just believe harder, then God will act on my behalf. We flex it as if it's a muscle. If I exercise faith more, we think, God, he will do more. He'll do miraculous things in our life. If I exercise faith less, God will do less. In other words, God is limited by our faith. Who's the center of this kind of theology? We are, not God. The reason I bring this up, this faulty notion of faith and of the Spirit on this specific Sunday is because if we're not careful, we can read the text before us in Mark chapter 6 as if its main point is one of this kind of a view of faith. Very quickly, we can walk away with the belief that the Scripture is telling us that where faith is in abundance, God can do great miracles. Where faith is lacking, God is powerless to perform miracles. And we view it as if it's the clausometer, right? We view it as if there's this amount that we have to believe before God can finally be freed up to act. But before we read that into this text, let's run it through the filter of Scripture and see what we come up with as we attempt to expose the text. And as we do, I think that what we'll find is that the original author was trying to give us a far different view. He was trying to give the original hearers, and us as well, an opportunity to contemplate how we want to respond to the authority of Christ that's been illustrated over the last three weeks. Now, this will help us understand even more clearly what faith is and is not and how God interacts with it. So let's begin by reading our section this morning in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Would you join me there? It says this, He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, 
except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Now, over the last three weeks, we've been looking in depth at Jesus' authority as it's been portrayed. First, it was authority. Do you guys remember three weeks ago? I know that's an eternity ago, but it was authority over the chaos, okay? He brought order over the chaos and the idea of the chaos monster. The second week was that he, oh, you are flipping back in your notes. I can see you doing it. Good job. The second week was that he had authority over the kingdom of darkness. And then the third week, what we looked at last week is that he had authority over what? Death and sickness, okay? Now, these are all the collective enemies of the reign of the creator God, the God of order, the God of light, the God of life and healing, And within the first story, Jesus' authority over the chaos, the author leaves us with a question that has been running throughout Mark as a thread, and it will continue to do so. Who is this guy? Who is this that even the waves and the sea obey him? In the second story, the demoniac answers, this is the Son of God. And in the third story, we see that this truth of his position within the Trinity, and as the incarnate God, allows him to have authority even over death to the point he can resurrect a dead girl. It's amazing. And so the hearer is left wondering, what do I do with this information? If we were paying attention, we walked away from those three going, is there anything Jesus doesn't have authority over? And the answer is, no. Either Jesus is all these things and the omnipotent God, or he is not. That's the intent of the author. And so Mark then moves into the possible responses that one can have towards this gospel news. One can accept the truth of who Jesus is by faith and be commissioned and sent out in his name, as we'll see next week, with all authority. One can hear the information, much as Herod did, we'll see the following week, and be indifferent to the fact, which we will see is basically the same as non-belief or unbelief. But first, we will see specifically what it is today to have no faith and to reject Jesus. Today we're going to see the first response to Jesus' authority, lack of faith and rejection. Lack of faith and rejection. That's the title for today's sermon if you want to write it down. And as we go through this, we're going to ask ourselves the question, is there any piece of our faith that is rejecting Jesus? Is there any piece of our life that is rejecting Jesus? I listened to a couple sermons uh, of some teachers I really respect, and the one bummer that I saw was that they did a great job uh, exposing the text, but the one bummer I saw was it was all about those people out there, all the non-believers. There was no question for those inside the church. And so today I really want us to humble ourselves and be teachable and see, is there something that we need to glean from this to understand if there's any piece of us that rejects Jesus? And the first point that we're going to look at this morning is this. Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension demand a response. They demand a response. They don't just ask for it. They demand it. The three prior stories have us bouncing back and forth across the Lake of Galilee. With the demon-possessed man, Jesus and his disciples had crossed over to the eastern side, this area called the Decapoli, which is the, the Greek area, okay? It's the Gentile area. 
the Romans um, were over there uh, as well. And then in 521 through 43, it has Jesus returning to the western side where his ministry base of Capernaum was and Peter's house was there as well. And here in chapter 6, verse 1, it says he then left. So we know that it's not at Capernaum. And he and his disciples, they go away from there, from Capernaum, and they go to Jesus' hometown. Now, it's agreed by almost all scholars that this is referring to the tiny hamlet known as Nazareth. And I use hamlet because it was tiny. This was a small village that probably looked at at the time something like this. And it was built into a hillside. So this older picture shows it back a couple hundred years ago, right? It was built into this side of the cliff. It was much larger in this picture than it was in the day of Jesus because many archaeologists believe that Nazareth at the time of Jesus would have maxed out at about 500 people. Now, that gives you a little bit more context about Jesus showing up. Just for context, realize that this church is about 250, 275 on a Sunday. And so everybody knew this Jesus, He grew up there. He went away. He had news come back about who this was. Imagine for a second that one of our children grows up, goes off to seminary, and comes back on a Sunday. We want to learn what he's learned, and so we have him take the stage. That would basically be what it was for Jesus. A few people in the crowd may not have known him, but most did. Remember that in these days where you were born and where your family lived was largely where you stayed most of your life. It's where you would live, work, and die. Very rarely for the common peasantry did people act as uh, mobile as we are today. In other words, Nazareth was full of people that knew Jesus and had watched him over the years as he grew up in his father's home, took over his father's trade as what was called a tecton. That's a Greek word for a contractor, right? Uh, The the colloquialism we know is that he was a carpenter, but the reality is, is he was probably a craftsman in many, many different ways. And that's one of the only reasons that Seth is so close to Jesus is because he's also a contractor. Just kidding, just kidding. Now, the reality is, is basically what Seth does, what Jeremy does, these men in our church who are contractors, that's what Jesus did. He didn't only work with wood. He would have taken over his father's trade. Uh, But then Jesus also seemed, since the age of 12, Luke tells us, to have a rabbinic side to him. He started to teach the word of God. He understood it very well. And so when this man who had been practicing as an itinerant rabbi came back to town, the leaders of the synagogue thought, why not have him stand up and teach? And commentators will disagree on whether this was something that all men in the synagogue did and Jesus was just reading part of the scroll or if he was actually standing up to teach the word. But regardless, there was room for Jesus to teach and they trusted him enough for him to stand. Now, synagogue services were very similar to our services today. There was readings from the Torah, uh, teaching on its meanings, uh, recitations of the great Shema or specific psalms or prayers, and then at the end, there would be a blessing, much like we do at this church. And so up stands Jesus, and the eyes of most everyone in the synagogue would have been acquainted with him. They would have known who he was, and they were all probably expecting this nice recitation from this hometown boy. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus has made it as a rabbi? Yeah, there's all those weird stories out there, but let's see what he has to say. Now, instead of him just reciting something. Words that come forth from Jesus cause shock. Look at verse 2. They were astonished at his wisdom and his power. What was it that they were referring to? Mark does not say, nor does Matthew, but Luke paints a more vivid picture. Let's go ahead and turn there to Luke chapter 4. All right, Luke 4.16. 
He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, and this is where he's teaching them, This is where, like I'm doing right now, he's supposed to be teaching them. And what they expected was, boy, won't it be great when the Messiah comes? Won't it be awesome when he fulfills this? That's what they expected. But then he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So quiet a pin drop would have been heard. Wait, what? Did he just claim to be the Messiah? Absolutely. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, wait a minute, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephah, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst... He went away. Now we read this, and in our culture, in our context, we're like, man, why would they be so mad? Guys, recognize that they realized he was proclaiming to be equal with God. He was proclaiming to be the Messiah. And so they were going to kill him out of righteous anger because he was anathema. He was going against God. Now the text that Jesus read from in Isaiah was the one we heard earlier today from Isaiah 61 that Dallas read to us. Notice that the first portion of it is exactly what Jesus quoted, but the last two lines he didn't quote. He actually stopped partway through. He didn't quote, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. He's explicitly speaking from this text that is talking about the Messiah to come who will restore the world to right. And in those first verses, it gives the statement of the mission of the Messiah And it fits hand in glove with his own, but he stops there because he's saying in his first coming, the mission was to provide salvation so that his second coming may then bring judgment and the justice of God. In uh, in the following sections surrounding that portion of Isaiah, the Messiah is speaking of an eternal covenant with his people, the fact that they will spread throughout the nations, that they will be part of every nation. And Jesus, in his statements in Luke, brings up the stories of the widow of Zarephah and Naaman the Syrian, who was a leper. Both of these were Gentiles who received the grace of God through the prophets Elijah and Elisha because the Jewish people wouldn't listen to them. They were so hardened and had so little belief that Elijah and Elisha went to bring the grace of God to someone else 
other than the Jewish people. And so by and large, because of their unbelief, they went away, just as Jesus was going to do. Just as Jesus is unwelcome and unrecognized in his own hometown, Jesus is just as unwelcome and unrecognized by the Jewish leaders as their Messiah. It's as if Nazareth, and this story here is a microcosm of the greater story in the gospel, that Jesus will be refused by his own. In essence, Jesus was calling them unfaithful and blind to their own Messiah, so blind that he too would take the gospel to the Gentiles. And you can see the response of wrath and hatred, so much so that they want to murder him by throwing him down the mountainside. And to be clear, this had little to do with whether they had quote-unquote faith in the Christmas spirit sense, like Elf, or the idea that, well, we believe that he can perform miracles. They saw it. They were stating he was doing something in power. They saw the miracles, and the miracles weren't enough to make them believe that he could do more miracles. They'd heard things, as other accounts in the Gospels tell us. The faith here has far more to do not with a Christmas spirit sense of faith, a faith of a muscle that we flex, but it has far more to do with the fact that they would not submit to his authority and recognize him as Messiah, which is the entire context of the three sections before it. To take this one section out of context and make it just about flexing your your, uh, muscle of faith is to miss the entire point of the context surrounding it. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 6. Take a look there with me. Mark chapter 6. These men and women who were in the synagogue knew what so many nowadays will not acknowledge. Jesus' claims, let alone his actions, demand a response. And not a half-hearted response, but a full-fledged, whole-hearted response. The context of the verses from Isaiah are that Jesus is the anointed king, the offspring of David, the son of God, the inheritor of the kingdom of heaven, and he is either king, the highest authority on earth, or he is not. It became very popular over the last century to talk about a quote-unquote decision for Christ. You guys have heard this before? Make a decision for Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I get the heart behind it, but making a decision locks it up in what part of your body? Your brain as if we were voting him into power in a democratic fashion. Make a decision for McCain, make a decision for Obama, make a decision for Jesus. But Jesus is king. Any decision needs to quickly result in a response of submission to his authority, or it is no decision at all. You can do all sorts of things in your brain, but if they don't translate to your life and your body, what kind of a decision is it? Right now, I would love to eat some Jelly Belly jelly beans. I've made a decision for jelly bellies. Anybody got any? I'd like to eat them. But if I don't actually do it, what does it matter? Jesus has been healing and is now proclaiming that he is the Messiah, the anointed king sent from the creator God. This demands a response. And so what we see, though, in this story is that the initial response of human nature is to reject Jesus as God and Messiah. That's our innate gear. That's our neutral as humanity. The folks in Nazareth aren't swayed by what they've heard. We know from other accounts in the Gospels that the stories of his great healing 
had reached even the Gentile villages, so it has definitely gotten to Nazareth. They knew about it. And they're not swayed by the few healings he does in town. It says there in verse 5, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Isn't that funny? He did no mighty works at all, but you healed, stand up, walk. Oh, yeah, that's not a big deal at all, right? He didn't do more than that, but he did at least that. And they're not even swayed by his healing or his fantastic teaching. And why does it say that they weren't swayed? What is it that holds them back? It didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to them. Faithlessness to God clouds our ability to follow his will and see things as he sees them. Faithlessness clouds our ability to understand. This man who stood before them was just a tecton in their mind. He's just a carpenter. He's the son of a carpenter. It was an honest trade, but he can't be the Messiah. We know this guy. He's the son of Mary, the brother of these men and women that we know. The Messiah has to be someone else, they thought. And so it says that they took offense. The Greek word is the word we get the idea of scandal from. Everybody say, scandalizo. Sounds more Italian than it does Greek, right? Maybe that's just my bad accent. A Greek scholar right now would be like, ugh, right? Scandalizo. They were aghast that this man could believe that he was the Messiah. They took offense to it. And this is not a problem that is new to mankind. Remember back in the garden? God had given his understanding of what was good and evil. It is one of the main themes of the book of Genesis. Tov vara in the Hebrew. Everybody say tov vara. Tov, good, va, and, ra, evil, good and evil. Genesis 1 is explicitly a statement that God is the one that determines good and evil. That is God's point. That is, that is his being. He's the judge. He's the one who determines what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. Man, us, you and me, we are simply the ones that follow his ruling. That is the natural order to undermine that is to say something as stupid as my sons are responsible for provision for me. It makes no sense. It's the natural order of things. But look at the wording of Genesis 3-6 up on the board. Notice what causes Eve after she's been tempted by the enemy. It's the last step for her to step into unbelief, a, a lack of trust of Yahweh. It says in Genesis 3-6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Our society has very much decided that sin looks bad, right? You know, we picture this with the tree, and there's Satan standing there in his red pajamas with the pitchfork and the horns, right? And we think, how could Eve have, oh, man, what's wrong with her? How could she have fallen? Satan's right there. Didn't she see it? But guys, this is the whole point of sin. Sin looks tasty, doesn't it? Sin looks like something that's good. I've always wondered why in the midst of arguments with my wife, I think that it's a good idea to argue with her. Because it feels right and justified and true, does it not, husbands? It's tasty, right? We make our sin look tasty. The New Testament says that Lucifer is gorgeous. Gorgeous. He's an angel of light that draws you to him, salivating the entire way. 
Sin makes sense to us. I'd much rather try this. But, but pastor, I know that the Bible says that I'm going to get myself in all sorts of trouble if I have sex before the covenant of marriage, but I love him. I love him. It makes sense to me. Well, I'm going to marry her anyway. I, 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 trust me, pastor, I'm going I'm to marry her anyway. It makes sense to us. The woman decides to follow her own understanding of what is good and what is evil, even though God gave explicit instructions not to. At its core, this is a choice to place ourselves in the position of God, deciding good and evil. It's to usurp the throne of God and place him as our subservient. We're seeing this more and more in the church as Christians fall away from core truths and doctrines and let them go by the wayside because they have taken it upon themselves to determine truth. I'm meeting with Christians all the time who are like, yeah, you know, I never would have thought this way before, but my son or daughter, you know, they believe this and, and I know God wouldn't send them to hell, so I have to change my own theology even though generations of Christianity have said, that's not how God ordained it. We suddenly, personally, know more than every other Christian in the Bible itself. And you and I do the same. We proclaim allegiance to Christ as king, judge, and lawgiver, but then we want to engage in a sin or go against God's command, so what do we do? We justify it as if it's fit. You see, faithlessness allows us to justify our sin with our own view of good and evil. We have made ourselves king, judge, and lawgiver. Now, this is the majority of the world. I hate to say it. People say stories like Jonah and the whale or the flood or Jesus walking on water. Well, you know, those don't make a ton of sense. They're nonsense. They're myth. And so the whole Bible must be nonsense, they say. And then it cascades from there because if God is good, we say, then he wouldn't send the majority of people to an eternal destiny away from himself, an eternal destiny of punishment and torment. That doesn't make sense, we say. But in doing so, we've created a false dilemma where God is only good if he designs a system and comes up with a plan where the majority gets saved. What we've done is we've taken our democratic American nature and said that that is actually the ruling framework rather than God's rule being the ruling framework. Again, we've made ourselves king and ruler. Our judgment and understanding is not the determination of good and evil, and we must preach that to ourselves daily. God's is. That's why Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Any of you who've been in counseling with me, you've, you've heard me say that feelings are valid and we need to trust our feelings and listen to them. That doesn't mean we then take them and play them out to the fullness. When we feel sad or hurt in a relationship, we need to trust that and understand it and validate it for the moment to say there's something broken in the relationship. Just because we feel hurt doesn't mean the other person has harmed us, though. It's simply enough to say, I need to work on this in relationship. And the way we understand that is to bring all of our thoughts and feelings, all of our motives, all of our attitudes, all of our actions and words under the authority of Jesus and to trust in what he tells us. And so both can be true. 
The initial response of human nature is to reject Jesus as God and Messiah because it doesn't make sense to our earthly, sinful minds and hearts. But we understand this, right? The other day, you know, I'm a pastor. I'm trying to maintain purity. And so the one thing that's okay for us pastors to have addictions to is food. You ever notice that? That is the pastoral sin fit for public consumption. If I came up here and said, guys, I'm really stuck on you know, a hard drug, you'd be like, oh boy, get him out of the pulpit. But if I come up here and say, guys, I am a glutton when it comes to sugar, you're like, ha, high five, pastor. I get you. I resonate with that one. That's authentic, right? But here's the deal. That's the one I get. So when I come home from a seven-day period of counseling and I've had all of the problems of the world balance on my shoulders, I eat my feelings. The other day, Kelly brought home licorice. She loves me. And she knows that that is the way to my heart. And so I sat down, and 15 minutes later, I realized I'd eaten the entire bag of licorice. The reality is, is that it was good for me to do so. It was right. Man, that licorice tasted good. It looked good. It was from Trader Joe's, for goodness sakes. And so I ate it all. But guess what happened? Can anyone tell me what happened? The framework that God had built into my system rejected that. And I'll simply leave it there. It was not good for me to do so. But yet, in my own senses, it made a ton of sense. Least likely to occur is that we would give up our false notion of independence and autonomy to submit to a Messiah that calls us to lose our lives so that we might gain our lives. In fact, all of the commands of Christ are so paradoxical and backwards to what makes sense to us that we constantly deny them. When you're talking to your enemy, don't fight with them, love them. Take responsibility. Oh, that doesn't sound good. When you're with your spouse, serve them, honor them. But what if I'm mad at them and it's their fault? Hans, what if, what if I just had this terrible life and I, I need a coping mechanism and so, man, that thing, that one thing, you know, God gives me that one thing, that one coping mechanism, right, Pastor? But this is where trust of God comes in, trusting that his ways are better and higher than our ways. This is the first part of what true faith is. Years ago, I would have fought people left and right when they'd come to me with these kinds of explanations and justifications and now I make it very simple on people. I say, you're either a Christian or you're not. You're either under his commands or you're not. What do you want to do? Amen. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's to align our understanding of the future hope with that of God's. Hope is not what we can fill ourselves with on this earth. It's the hope of the restoration of God's creation and his rule over it. Hope is not getting that special someone in our life that we can marry. Hope is not finally getting to have sex. Hope is not finally getting to retire. Hope is not making enough money. Hope is not finding the job that fulfills us. These are not the things of hope. Hope is the restoration of God's creation and his full rule over it. And it's likewise the conviction of spiritual truths that cannot be comprehended by our senses. This is not just the idea here in Hebrews 11 of believing in what you can't see, like elf in the clausometer, but rather an understanding that even though something makes no sense to you and I, 
even though we are not seeing the truth of spiritual victory played out in everyday life, we recognize that it's true and we endure in the midst of it until the end. You see, just before this statement in Hebrews, it says this, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The faith there, guys, is not believing in what you don't see. Remember, even the demons believe, and they shudder at the truth. But it's living by faithfulness. It's relational. It's covenantal. And then he says, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Again, the use of faith here is not that simple mental assent, but more that faithfulness in relationship, a covenant longevity, an intimate relationship with God based on staying faithful to his will. And if we continue to sell this false gospel that saying a prayer and believing Jesus exists even though you don't see him, that that's all there is to faith, we are selling a bill of goods that is false. It's actually a lie. We must tell people that, yes, belief and a statement of that belief, even in prayer, that is a good starting place. But notice that in Acts chapter 3, when Peter went and preached to the people, he didn't say, say a prayer and then you're good. He said, repent and be baptized and walk in God's people. But this is offensive. And just like with Jesus... This is the faith that the people of Nazareth, though largely the people of Israel, they lacked when presented with the truth of Jesus. They took offense at the truth of his coming, and so he replied, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown and family. Dear friend, what is your response when you hear the Bible? What is your response when you hear the gospel truth that Jesus died in your place and you needed that death because you were locked in sin? What is your response when you hear he rose from the grave to proclaim his victory over your sin and take his rightful place as king? What is your response when you hear that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead? What is your response when you hear that he poured out his spirit into his people that join all those who claim to be Christians with his people, the church, and we submit to one another in covenant faithfulness? What is your response when you hear these things? Do you take offense at what he commands and what the word says? Are his laws and commands offensive to you in your advanced, evolved state? Or do you actually listen and submit to his loving authority when it's presented to you? How do you respond when people come to you with conviction? Do you respond in thankfulness and gratitude, learning what it is to follow his lead Or do you respond in stiff-necked resistance, justifying your actions and pointing the finger at everyone else? Dear friends, each of us must take stock of our response. No one else can control you. No one else can change you. You alone are responsible for your actions, words, and attitudes. And each of us must understand this. We must understand our response to God's word as we devour each and every bit of it within its original context. And maybe for someone in here today, maybe the offense is the simple fact that you are in need of a savior, that you need someone to save you. Maybe it's offense at the fact that your sin, your actions are 
a scandal to a holy and loving God. This is scandalous. This is so offensive, you might say. I'm a pretty good person. Uh, I, I haven't done terrible things like some of those other people out there. And so it's a scandal to you. But the reality is, that's you attempting to define good and evil once again. In reality, all of us have had the image of God originally placed in us, perverted by our own actions and twisted in sin, so that our innate nature is to take offense at that which God offers, salvation for our sins. That's why the therapeutic gospel is so great. Don't talk about repentance. Don't talk about sin. Just say that Jesus loves you and you're enough for Jesus and he chases after you and it's all about you. That's why the therapeutic gospel is so popular. To come and say that we are sinners in need of a savior, that he died for us, that he rose again to have authority over us, that is offensive and a scandal. And if you have previously responded in offense to the gospel of Jesus, today is the day to respond in repentance. Don't keep wandering around thinking, well, I won't listen to it today. I know that the Lord will keep chasing after me. That's what the Bible says. He'll keep chasing after me. No, dear friend, we go on a trajectory towards Christ or away from him. And more and more days that pass where you harden your heart to the gospel truth, the harder it will be for the Spirit to bring you into submission. Don't wait one more day. If you're a person who wants to trust in Jesus today and you realize you have not bowed the knee to him, you've fought against him, you've not fully accepted his place as not only Savior but King, then today turn to him in loving gratitude. Trusting in the sacrifice of the Son to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if you want to do that today, there will be elders in the back that want to pray with you at the end of service. Well, Hans, that's scary to me. I don't want to go back and talk to anybody. I'll just do it right here. Isn't, isn't faith a private thing? No. False. It's just not. Because if you, don't deny, if you deny Jesus before men, he will deny you before the Father. I always thought it was funny when I heard pastors. I got trained this way too. I did it for many years. I'm not going to have you do anything crazy. I'm not going to have you stand up or walk forward. Right where you sit, just raise your hand between you and Jesus. Are you scared? Have you not heard that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Amen. Stand up where you are and cry out for God. Come back and talk to an elder and say, I want to follow Jesus. Declare Jesus before men. Because if not, the last thing that we understand from this passage today is this. Rejecting God will ultimately lead to one's own rejection. This was the second time, according to the Gospels, that Jesus had come to Nazareth since he had entered his ministry, and it is the last time. But I thought Jesus chases after us no matter how many times we sin against him, no matter how many times. Second time. Mark takes a hard stance and states that Jesus could do no mighty work there and follows it up with a statement of his marveling at their unbelief or lack of faith. Matthew makes it a little more gentle, saying it this way, and he, did, oops, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He did not do versus he could not do, as it says in Mark. Luke avoids the comment altogether. But this is where my introductory comparison comes fully into play. Was Jesus limited because of their unbelief, their lack of faith, as if it were Christmas spirit? Is there a Jesus-o-meter, like there's a clausometer? If our view of faith is only 
believing in what we see. That's obviously a piece of it, but only believing in what we do not see, kind of like Christmas spirit, then this would make sense. Faith is a kind of opposite of doubt, and that's how we do it in our society that is largely a product of a worldview based upon scientific method. I have to believe it because I can prove it. But the reality is that the word faith as used throughout the New Testament in the Greek language is about far more than that. Faith is about relational allegiance. There's a great book called Faith by Allegiance Alone. All of my Reformed brothers, we, we all kind of jerked at it when it first came out. Like, how can he even say that? Martin Luther is rolling over in his grave, right? But the reality is, is this wonderful. He basically talks about how our our culture and our language has shifted so much towards this idea of unless I can prove it by seeing it in a scientific method, I won't believe it. And so we've cast this spectrum of faith versus doubt that we've actually perverted the word as it was originally intended, that the word allegiance that is not used all that much is actually a word that has more of the connotations to it. Another word is faithfulness. It's funny to me that we still cast faith as an idea, a mental assent, when if I am faithful to my wife, does that mean I believe in her? What does it mean? It means I am exclusively hers in covenant relationship and intimacy. And so that idea of faith is very important to understand. The word here in the Greek rendered unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief in the second half of verse 6 is uh, apistion. And the ah in the front means a negation and pistion is related to the Greek word for faith, pistis. It is a negation of faith. And we discussed this a bit, a bit last week. Pistis is the word that means trust and allegiance and faithfulness, as in marriage. It's a word surrounded by the idea of covenant. That is why I hit you over the head with two-by-fours every month about covenant faithfulness. To be faith. In the faith is to be covenantally faithful. This is what the Strong's Concordance uses for that word, apistia. Notice the first definition there. What does it say? Apistia, or the negation of faith, is faithlessness. That is a relational word. And so Mark 6.6, 6, he marveled because of their unbelief, is not Jesus saying, well, I guess I won't do any more party tricks because they don't seem to think I can do it. It's not like when I used to go out on the basketball court with a huge ego and go, I'll only dunk if you believe I can do it, right? No, that's ridiculousness. What it is is Jesus condemning them for their lack of faithfulness to, Yah excuse me, to Yahweh and his Messiah. He's condemning them for their lack of walking in relationship with him, of, of bowing the knee to Yahweh and especially to his Messiah that is proving by his very works and actions and ministry and teaching that he is that Messiah. Verses 1 through 5 here today are a complete denial of the fact that the kingdom of God was amongst them and that the king was standing before them. And notice what they do to justify their unbelief. They ask tons of questions. In our society, that's the, I'm not so sure yet. I just have lots of questions about Jesus. Yo, let's just cut to the chase here. He died, he resurrected, he showed himself to hundreds of people. Do you follow him or not? Don't worry about the flood. Don't worry about if there was a big water canopy over the earth. Don't worry about if he's coming back through a rapture or not. Stop the questions. He died. He resurrected. He ascended. Do you believe it or not? That's the reality. 
And he is the Messiah spoken of in Isaiah 61. He is the ruler over all the nations in the book of Daniel. He is the prophet promised by Moses that would be an end to all prophets and would speak the word of God. He is the one that has come to bring healing to the nations. And yet even with all they have heard by way of his miracles at the Sea of Galilee, all they have seen themselves and heard in his teaching, even then they still will not bear their allegiance to him as king over the kingdom of heaven. And so what does he do? He walks away. Was it a lack of faith that limited him from healing? If so, and if faith is required for Jesus to act, why was he able to calm the storm in chapter 4 after which he turned to his disciples and said, why are you guys so afraid? Have you still no faith? They had zero faith and he still acted. It's not based on us and our faith. It's based upon Jesus. And I want to propose to you that Jesus was not limited by faith. He was actually very respectful. He was respectful of the lack of desire for relationship and for the kingdom to come in the lives of the people of Nazareth. If peace, faith, is about relationship, then we must recognize that God is a perfect gentleman. He's not going to force himself into the life of someone who does not desire his presence. Notice how little Jesus ever chases after those who reject him. Not at all. We all like to throw out the, oh, he left at 99 to find the one. Guys, that's talking about sheep, and sheep are a picture of people already in the faith. That's a picture of church discipline going after the person who's turned away from Jesus and the body's dragging them back in because they love them. That has nothing to do with non-believers. In fact, he will say to those that follow him, as we'll see next week, move on and shake the dust off your feet when the gospel's rejected. Don't waste your time. It's only in the false therapeutic gospel that we have devised a way to make Jesus subservient to us and chase after us. My wife and I dated for four years. Yes, because I'm a moron. For four years. And it was getting to the time where Kelly, because she was smart, was realizing that I was not a good spiritual leader. I wasn't following Jesus. I was treating her badly. And so she decided that when I came back from playing professional basketball, she was going to kind of put a line in the sand and say, hey, dude, buddy, you know, either leave or propose. Like, we got to get this done. Now, little did she know that I'd already been talking to my sisters about creating a proposal and proposing to her. And because I am such a genius, no, moron, I decided that I was going to throw her off the, the scent. I was going to tell her, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm never going to get married. You know, I'm, I'm good being single, okay? Hey, dudes, single guys, don't ever do that. Dumb move, okay? Dumb move. So because Kelly is the most faithful and loyal person in the world, she was like, hmm, so by New Year's, she was going to say, you know, you need to propose or else. Now, why did she do that? Why didn't she keep chasing after me? I'm so special. I'm so wonderful. You know, chase after me. I'm so great. No, why? My actions were showing that I wanted no part of covenant commitment and faithfulness. Now, our daughter will hear a very different story from their mother. If the dude doesn't commit to you right away, he's not worth it. I wish for her good that her dad had told her that. But for my own good, I'm glad she stuck around. See, when we think about it this way, the therapeutic gospel 
is a giant steaming pile of poo. You're so wonderful, person, that Jesus is just going to chase after you because you're so great and special. Even though you deny him every day, even though you sin against him, even though you make no priority for his people or for his word or for prayer, you're just special and he's going to chase after you. Guys, that's not the truth. God will give us over to our greatest desires, and if our desires are consistently opposed to his reign, then we will find ourselves very far from him. And we in church are no different. These people were the closest to him. They knew him, and yet the words of John ring true. John 1.11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In the book of Romans, as Paul lays out the sinful response of man to the holy and good God, he says three times that God gave mankind up to what they desired. God is a perfect gentleman. Here's one of those cases in Romans 128. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And notice that because they did not see fit to acknowledge God as God, he gave them up to what they wanted. And the lesson we can learn from the response of the people in Nazareth to their Messiah is that we need to strive in the other direction, not to earn his love, not to earn his grace, but because it's already been given. Let me speak to the people in the audience who right now who are just in massive shame against themselves, who are beating them up saying, see, I knew I wasn't good enough for Jesus to pursue me. He already did. By the cross, he already did. He got on one knee and gave you the ring and said, you are the most beautiful, wonderful thing in the entire cosmos and I love you so much that I'm giving my own life to prove it to you. He already did. And so if you're struggling right now with, see, I knew I wasn't worthy, see, I knew I wasn't good enough, the reality is you're not and I'm not. And yet he still died for you to draw you to himself. Respond to that truth. There's a wonderful statement by a prophet of God named Azariah in 2 Chronicles 15.2. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Always, guys, always. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. But Hans, I thought he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Yeah, that's for his covenant people. It says that no one can pluck you out of his hand, but if you go running and leaping, he's going to let you go. And this still holds true for us today. And so let us instead do what is called for in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Seek after the Lord with all your heart. If we do that, then we can relish the portion that follows the quote we just read from John 1, 11. John 1.11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is nothing we can do, no works of our own, that will draw his grace to us. It's already been given. That's why it's called grace. It's by God's grace that we are saved, through faith. But we must step into that faith in relationship with him. And so this morning, if you don't know Jesus, I beg of you, step into relationship with him. Don't put it off one more second. 
But for those of us who are in relationship with him this morning, we must acknowledge that the first possible response to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that of unbelief, faithlessness, and rejection. And we must humbly acknowledge that even if we have accepted salvation from Christ, it is still possible that we could be in active faithlessness as we justify behavior, words, and attitudes that are the result of our own authority rather than his. Brothers and sisters, I love you enough, and I've done this long enough now that I see where people's trajectory goes. I've seen it in my own life as I've slowly but surely justified my actions and found myself far from God and his people. I've seen it in those I counsel and care for as, yeah, maybe I'll just, I'll just justify this one more thing and justify this one more thing, and then one day they wake up and they say, I just don't feel Jesus in my life anymore. I love you so much that I'm willing to lay down this giant caution sign that says, know that your innate response to Jesus is unbelief and rejection. And so run fast the other way, amen? Amen. It's possible that we could be in active faithlessness as we justify behavior, words, and attitudes that are the result of our authority rather than his. This morning, as we go to the table of communion, let us take stock of what areas of our life we have justified and those areas of our life where we have rejected what we know to be true to his excuse me, command. Are there areas of our life where we are justifying straying from faithfulness to Christ because we have made ourselves arbiters of truth, judges of good and evil? And I don't have to give more application than that because I think that the Holy Spirit is active in many of you right now pointing out to you where that is. Let's repent from those attitudes and justification today and plead with Jesus that he might reign as Messiah in our lives. And if you're a person sitting there and going, you know what, I'm actually in a pretty good spot. I have been pouring out my heart and my life to Jesus and I feel like I'm in a good spot. I praise God for that. And I would say, well done. So take time at the table of communion to pray for your brothers and sisters who might be struggling with that. To pray for those in your life that you desire to evangelize to. In Peter's words, which we had read to us before this teaching, let us walk in the identity of his chosen people, not refusing the stone of Jesus Christ, but letting him be the cornerstone of our lives so that we can be God's people, allegiant and obedient to him out of a response of infinite gratitude for his infinite love.